If you've never heard of the vaquita, you're missing out. It's hands down one of the most adorable creatures you may imagine. The vaquita porpoise is a small porpoise. It's uh, about my size, so I'm uh, just over five feet tall and 120 pounds, but I'm not nearly as attractive. Um, they're uh, quite a lovely slender porpoise. They have dark eye patches and a sort of dark lipstick. They've got sort of a goth thing going on. This is Dr. Barbara Taylor, one of the world's foremost experts on vaquitas. I'm recently retired as a senior scientist for NOAA Fisheries, where I have been a marine conservation biologist for the last 30 years. Dr. Taylor has been studying the vaquita not just because she loves marine mammals, but because this cute little porpoise happens to have a relatively small habitat just in northwestern Mexico in an area called the Gulf of California. That's also home to a very prized blue shrimp, also known as colossal shrimp. The blue shrimp of the northern Gulf bring the highest price for any shrimp product in the United States. Some California retailers sell the blue shrimp from the upper Gulf of California for as much as 40 bucks a pound. But that's nothing compared to another seafood product that also comes from the upper Gulf, the largest species of croaker fish, known as the totuaba. The totuaba's oversized swim bladder is dried and sold mainly in Asia, where it's marketed as a miracle cure against wrinkles, or it's said to help with recovery after childbirth. Neither of these things have been clinically proven, but that hasn't stopped the totuaba from being one of the most coveted wildlife products on the planet. It is still worth more than per kilo than cocaine or gold. With so much money to be made in this small marine area, the poor vaquita has been caught, literally in the middle. Overfishing and the use of gill nets to catch shrimp and totuaba have decimated vaquitas to the brink of extinction. I'm Ruxandra Guidi, and this is The Catch, a series from Foreign Policy. On this season, I'm partnering with two Mexican colleagues, a journalist and an environmental activist, and we're heading down to the upper Gulf of California to meet up with local experts and talk to the fishers. We'll talk to marine biologists and conservationists trying to protect the totuaba and other marine animals from becoming bycatch. We'll hear from a band of ecological do-gooders who have braved Molotov cocktails and having their vessel rammed at sea during their efforts to rid the vaquitas' habitat of gillnets. And we'll take a look at Mexico's notorious cartels, who have also enmeshed themselves into the illegal fishing and trade of Totoaba. Later, we'll follow the supply chain north to the United States and learn more about the role of importers, restaurants, supermarkets, and you, Yes, you, the consumer, who all have a role to play in keeping our sea sustainable. But that's getting ahead of things. Let's go back to where things started, off the very serene and picturesque coast of Mexico's upper Gulf of California, where I want to better understand the danger that local communities and marine wildlife face. Here's episode one, The Aquarium of the World. The first time I visited the Gulf of California, just a couple of years ago, I didn't like it at all. 
that time I arrived that night in Puerto Peñasco, well north of the state of Sonora, and only an hour from the border with Arizona. To be honest, I'd only seen the more touristy part, which may have contributed to that bad first impression. There was a strip full of bars with loud music designed for gringo spring break tourists and shops that sold all kinds of cheap souvenirs. You know, those places where you're encouraged to drink a shot of tequila straight from the bottle. It's not hard to find those kinds of places here in Puerto Peñasco. But early the next morning, I got away from the noise of the city and I walked towards the coast where I could finally see what others had told me about this place, also known as the Sea of Cortez. The name comes from Hernán Cortés, so it has colonialist implications and locals prefer not to use it that much. You'll hear some of the people we talked to referencing the Sea of Cortez, but for our purposes, we'll stick with the Gulf of California. As the sun was rising, I found a calm sea of warm water. It was huge, like an ocean. A dozen seagulls and pelicans flew around a pair of small boats approaching the shore. They were fishers, returning from a long night of work. Under my feet I could see hundreds, no, thousands of tidal wells, tiny holes in the rocks filled with water left over from the high tide. And within each one of those, I could see an incredible variety of shells, snails, crabs, and long brown worms that left a very delicate spiral design in the wet sand. The Gulf of California is located northwest of Mexico and is surrounded by the states of Baja California, Baja California Sur, Sonora, Sinaloa, and Nayarit. It is the only sea in the world that belongs to a single country, Mexico. It's a refuge for thousands of marine and desert species and includes more than 900 islands and islets. It is considered one of the richest bodies of water on Earth. It is home to indigenous communities who have for centuries lived in harmony with this ecological treasure. There are at least a thousand varieties of fish here and about 2,000 species of marine invertebrates. And although they sound like many, those are only the ones we know. Scientists assume that there are many more species to discover and decipher. More than two-thirds of marine mammal species worldwide are found in the Gulf of California. That can start to give you an idea of how fantastic this place is in terms of biological diversity. In the summer of 1964, a university student in Northern California took a trip down to Mexico with his friend cruising in an old Volvo. When they reached the Gulf of California, they came upon that big blue sea. And immediately, Rick Brusca fell in love. I was quite used to the tide pools in California, but when I turned over a rock in a tide pool in the Sea of Cortez, it just blew my mind. There were just literally thousands and thousands and thousands of different kinds of invertebrates under those rocks. You could pick up handfuls of giant brittle stars that likes of which I'd never seen before in my life, some of them with 10-inch arm spans. And when I saw that much diversity and that much productivity and that much biomass in those tide pools, I, I was just blown away. I'd never seen anything like it or imagined anything like it. Rick Bresca is now a marine biologist and ecologist. Previously, he was director of the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum in Tucson, 
and taught at the University of Arizona for 25 years. Ever since he first saw the Gulf of California 50 years ago, he's been committed to its conservation, and he keeps finding reasons to come back. Everywhere in the Sea of Cortez is just uh, kind of mind-bending. It's where the cliffs and the rocks and the mountains come together with the blue, clear seas of the, of the Gulf of California. Uh, but also the biological diversity, which is absolutely enormous. I'd never seen diversity like that any place else in my life. And then once I began studying it, I realized, of course, that it's actually a tropical or at least a subtropical sea. And that's one of the main reasons the diversity is so high. Bresca's not the only one who's fallen in love with this place. One of the names associated with the Gulf of California is none other than Jacques Cousteau, the French oceanographer with his red wool cap who filmed his explorations under the sea. I know how peaceful it is down there. It feels like a three-dimensional rapture. I know what the temptation is to forget the surface and to swim from one surprise to another as erratically as jaywalkers. In 1986, Cousteau and his team went on a sailing expedition on the Gulf of California. They captured fantastic images of sea lions, sharks, manta rays, dolphins, which they filmed from above using a helicopter or by going underwater. And it was then that he baptized the Gulf as the aquarium of the world. At that time, the area already welcomed tourists, and there was a lot of commercial fishing. Fishing villages such as Peñasco and San Felipe were growing, but not so much, says Rick Brusca. Nothing compared to what it is today. I saw no signs of overfishing. I also saw no signs of pollution or too much development on the shoreline. I mean, all of the same cities that were being developed then are now heavily developed, but in those days, uh, the impact was, was minimal. But everyone already knew that excessive commercial fishing in the Gulf of California could put its great biological diversity at risk, and also that an escalation of fishing operations would be catastrophic for a particular species. The vaquita porpoise. This is one of the first echolocation sounds of a vaquita that were recorded by a research vessel in 2015. Bats are the best-known example of echolocation. Here's how it works. A vaquita emits a sound wave from the front of its head that it sends around. When that sound hits something, it bounces or echoes, and the returning waves can be picked up by the lower jaw of another vaquita, who then interprets them. In other words, it's their form of communication. The vaquita is endemic to the northern part of the Gulf of California. I'm not sure if it's the fact that vaquitas have these cute black eye sockets or big lips, but they seem to have the almost cartoonish expression of a smile on their faces. It looks like a stuffed toy. Everyone who sees a vaquita instantly falls in love with them. It is famous for being very shy and difficult to see. But back in the 80s, marine biologists like Barbara Taylor already knew the vaquita was in trouble. She and others working in Mexico pushed the government for more protections. In 2001, Mexico added the vaquita to the list of species on the brink of extinction. That advice right from the very beginning has been 
if you want to save vaquitas, you need to develop sustainable alternative fishing gear that doesn't kill vaquitas. But the use of gill nets continued, and vaquita numbers kept dwindling. The first concrete data we have about the species dates back to 1997, when it was estimated that there were around 567 vaquitas. When that recording was made in 2015, its population had fallen to around 59 vaquitas. Today, it's believed there are only 8 to 10 vaquitas left in the world, all living in their natural ecosystem in the upper Gulf of California. Over the past 25 years, we have witnessed its rapid demise. It is literally on the precipice of extinction. I'm on the first day of our trip with my two travel companions, Alex and Ernesto. We're at a seafood restaurant, and Alex is showing me a map of where the vaquita lives. Alex Oliveira is a Mexican marine biologist. He works for the Center for Biological Diversity, a conservation NGO based in the U.S. And Ernesto Mendez is a Mexican journalist who has been covering environmental issues for the Mexico City-based newspaper Excelsior for almost two decades. As we look at the map, Ernesto tells me more about the vaquita, as well as a local fish, a larger croaker, the totuaba. Ernesto tells me that area is rich in biodiversity and marine biodiversity for Mexico. Nowhere else in the world do these two species exist. So that makes it something very special. The three of us have come here in winter, during the shrimp fishing's peak season. We want to see what's being done in Mexico to prevent the extinction of the vaquita, the most threatened marine mammal in the world. But we also want to understand what the vaquita has to do with fishing, and especially with two species that have been overexploited for several decades. One of them has been caught legally, that's shrimp, and the other illegally, the totuaba. We'll talk more about both in the next few episodes, but for now, let's go back to the vaquita for a moment. Here's Ernesto. He says, it seems to me that the first time, if I remember correctly, that I came to the upper Gulf region was like in 2000. Back then, the vaquita numbers were in the hundreds. Now, Ernesto says, there aren't even a dozen. There are so few that it is hard to imagine it. There was already talk of saving the vaquita. 22 years later, Ernesto says, we're still in the same place. Or it's not the same, it's worse, right? Vaquitas weren't even on the radar of the scientific community until 1958, when a pair of American zoologists discovered its skull on a beach. But it took three more decades for us to understand more about this elusive animal. In 1988, the first whole carcass of a vaquita was found, and already at that time it was speculated that it was disappearing. You're listening to audio from a video that went viral in 2020. The recording is somewhat shaky. Taken from above, 
It shows how a fisherman dressed in a yellow raincoat tries to untangle a vaquita trapped in his net. The vaquita is already dead. Her eyes are closed. She had been caught in an illegal net meant for Totuaba. Once she was entangled, she couldn't rise to the surface to breathe. This is unfortunately very common, even in the marine protected area where she lives and where fishing is illegal. For years, experts have said that illegal fishing was causing the vaquita disappearance, but fishers in the region disputed this. This video settled it with irrefutable proof. Gillnets kill vaquitas. And it's not just a vaquita. The whole ecosystem is under threat. But ask any fisher out here, and they will tell you. They're not out to destroy this magical place, this aquarium of the world. And many feel bad when they kill a vaquita or are told that this habitat is being decimated. We wanted to get a better understanding of just what's at stake here. So we decided to talk to someone who knows this place deeply. Our first stop is Puerto Peñasco in the state of Sonora, the same Puerto Peñasco tourist trap that I visited a couple of years ago. <laughs> Ernesto has brought us to one of its piers, and he introduces us to the other Ernesto. His last name is Gastelum, and we immediately go out to sea with him, aboard the small boat with an outboard motor, or panga, as it is known here. The sea is calm that morning as we move forward. This Ernesto harvests the highly valued white clam, or queen clam. He's been diving for almost 30 years. We sit on his panga with the engine off. Empezamos con una experiencia personal. Ernesto Gastelum tells me, let me start with a personal experience. Why don't you reach into the frozen water? Now, imagine that temperature for two hours. <laughs> I reach in. The water is very, very cold. I ask Ernesto how it feels to be down there at those temperatures and for two hours straight. How does he adapt? By meditating? Castellum says, yeah, speaking of meditating, down there, there are no distractions. If I am working to harvest some clam or snails, that's the only thing I can concentrate on. Anyone who has dived can identify with this. You really forget about the world on the surface. It's like it ceases to exist. Castellum is an old sea wolf, what we call in Spanish a viejo lobo de mar. He's only 44 years old, but he has the wisdom and experience of someone with more than 60 or 70 years in his trade. And you can see that he loves it. Fishing isn't just a job, it's his identity. And it has been his family's identity for generations. All this time under the sea has taught Castellum that the Gulf of California is not just a natural resource for fishers in the region. It's an entire universe, a complex ecosystem of five million years. But it's not unlimited. It's not just the diving that makes his work dangerous. There's another danger facing Ernesto. He's one of the few fishers out here who wants to fish in a sustainable way and by following the law. And this makes him an outlier. We're sitting on his banga, talking about these transcendental experiences he's had as a diver. 
when I notice a motorboat passing us by. It's the third time we're seeing these men, and we think they could be following us. Ernesto, my journalist colleague, made the unfortunate sartorial choice of dressing in a bright orange jacket today. He thought he was being smart because it would help us if we got lost. But really, it's making us stand out. We look like journalists from the city. And maybe there are people out here who don't want journalists asking too many questions, snooping around about illegal fishing or the vaquita. It occurs to me that this place, this aquarium of the world, is so very beautiful, but it is also dangerous, especially for anyone who'd like to protect that beauty. Next time on The Catch, we untangle how illegal fishing became the norm in the upper Gulf of California and why the efforts to stop the practice have largely failed. And that's it for part one of our new season of The Catch. Our show is made possible by the Readers of Foreign Policy, with additional support provided by the Walton Family Foundation. Our production team includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Maria Jimena Aragon, and Jimena Letgard. Special thanks to our team in Mexico, Alex Oliveira and Ernesto Mendez. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a review and subscribe on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Or head over to foreignpolicy.com, where you can listen to our other podcasts and sign up for our newsletter. Thanks for listening. I'm Ruxandra Guidi. See you next week.